Welcome everyone to the Toward Wholeness podcast, where our desire is to offer you tools so that you can pursue wholeness, spirit, soul, and body. The Apostle Paul prayed that we would be devoted to God's purposes in every area of life, our spirit, our soul, and our body. And so we're grateful that you join us today to listen to a friend and really special guest this morning whose experiences are uh, not unique at all, but uh, the the manner in which my friend has has walked this journey uh, is is I think encouraging for any listener. And again, the subject is a little bit cancer, but it's more than cancer. It's really the question of how do we continue to do the things that God has called us to do in the midst of unforeseen circumstances, what I call detours or setbacks. And so, uh, my guest is Kevin East and. Kevin is married, has five kids, three biological, two adopted. He has a regular rhythm also of inviting foster children into his home and life. He has a ministry called Mentoring Alliance. You can learn a lot more about all of Kevin's ministries at followingtolead.com, all one word, followingtolead.com. But the Mentoring Alliance is this uh, commitment to putting people in the lives of young people in order that they might receive what can only be, in my words, caught, not taught. In other words, we need more than data to live well. We need people in our lives. And Kevin has a heart for connecting older people with younger people in order that they might have that that person in their life who will impart wisdom and enable them to live well. And then Kevin has a class forthcoming entitled Four Hats, which is really about helping subsequent generations, young people, our children, live generously. And so uh, there's more to say, but go to followingtolead.com. That's where you'll find a lot of information, some great articles that Kevin has written. I've talked to your kids about sex, among other things. I really respect the work that Kevin has done, and even more so, because he's doing all this work in the midst of his own detour. So, Kevin, thanks so much for making the time to join us today. Oh, Richard, you know, it's it's great to be with you. We, As we were laughing ahead of time, we haven't seen each other in person in years, but the few times I've been around you and many times I've talked to you on the phone, or I just, I just I'm always uh, challenged and encouraged them around you. So thanks for having me. Well, we're living in two different parts of the world. You're down there and <laughs> I'm up here in Washington. And our surrounding cultures and politics are very different. But what draws us together is our shared love for Christ and our desire to see hope imparted through the people of God into the world. And so I'm just so grateful for the friendship uh, that we have. And you've just come off of a sabbatical, right? I did. My board allowed me, gifted me uh, after eight years of leading this ministry to take about six weeks off and... um, I had three goals to be with my wife, um, to be with my kids and to really spend ample time with the Lord Jesus, just to really enjoy him and be refreshed. My soul restored uh, by him. And it was just a rich, rich time. Enjoyed it. So, Kevin, have you been you you founded Mentoring Alliance, I believe. Uh, Have you been there eight years? Tell us a little bit about your journey to this ministry. Yeah, you know, I uh, my background was Christian camping. I'd worked at a large Christian camp in this area called Pine Cove. 
um, actually taken after some of the camps up in your neck of the woods, up there, Forest Home, and um, yep. there's an, there's another one up there. I forget the name right now, but yeah, Mount Herman. Forest, I think, is Mount Herman. Yep. Yep. That's right. Worked there for 15 years. Then I, uh, my wife and I started fostering kids. I really had a heart for how do we really, you know, there are a lot of kids that aren't getting in the foster system, not getting adopted, but they really need godly people to be influencing them. And so how can we get involved in that? And so I, the, the boys and girls clubs of East Texas called me, they were looking for a new CEO. And I said, look, I, you know, I want to be a part of a Christ centered ministry because I, I think that addressing kids hearts is of utmost importance. And they said, we want to become a Christ-centered ministry, which was really odd and unique. And so I came on eight years ago. We actually refounded to become the, the first Christ-centered Boys and Girls Clubs in the country. And then we reworked the whole organization to become Mentoring Alliance. And Boys and Girls Clubs of East Texas became underneath that overall banner mm. of Mentoring Alliance. And so we, now we do summer camps, after-school programs, and then we connect people as volunteer mentors as well. So that's what we do at Mentoring Alliance. Well, and, you know, just uh, a, a word and with a follow-up of a question, just the power of mentoring cannot be overstated. And I think particularly in this moment in history where there's just literally an avalanche of data that anybody can consume, mm-hmm. there's a. it seems like there's increasingly, ironically, this sense of, oh, I can kind of learn how to live my life in kind of a DIY way, right? Like I just, well, mm-hmm. I'll just go, I'll just Google how to make money, where to go to school, how to get, how to increase my credit rating, how to lower my body mass index, whatever. <laughs> and and so people are kind of setting out on these journeys when what's really desperately needed is someone who's already walked on that, on that path who can mm-hmm. impart uh, wisdom. And, and so I think you're trying to do that. You're not just crossing generational boundaries, but my understanding is you're crossing some socioeconomic and racial and cultural boundaries. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we're, one of the things I love about this ministry, honestly, Richard, is we're an intentionally multi-ethnic ministry. And so we have about 45 full-time staff, a few hundred part-time and summer staff. And I just am all, I'm, I get giddy and emotional walking around talking to our staff that are black, white, Hispanic, Filipino. I mean, it's just beautiful to me. Um, and it's something we're very intentional about. We were talking about First Thessalonians a minute ago. Our theme verse behind what we do, when we explain mentoring, is actually First Thessalonians 2.8 that says, and we were well pleased to offer you not only the gospel of God, but our very own lives. Yeah. We go, that's what mentoring is. It's, it's being this conduit that just overflows the goodness and the grace of God in the lives of kids and families. But we say to do two main things, to bring tangible help, but to bring eternal hope at the exact same time. It's not just offering one or the other, but both tangible help. The boy I've been mentoring for eight years, I felt like really needed to get into a different school. He had built a reputation for himself that got him kicked out of a number of schools. I said, you know, I talked to his grandmother, let's get him moved. I had to go all the way to the superintendent and said, look, would you please approve this? He did, got him moved. And I I felt like as an advocate for him, that really is, that's a tangible help type thing. But he's been walking life with my family for eight years now. And we've been able to share with him, bring him to church with us. Uh, that's been an, a, a, just a, a very sweet aspect as well. So to offer both to them, tangible help and eternal hope. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love that. And that really is a, a living out of that kind of embodiment principle, incarnational principle of the gospel, right? Like mm-hmm. we literally walk with people. And then in the context of doing so, uh, that's where profound transformation occurs. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that you and I probably connect on early on. I couldn't tell you all the details about your book, Colors of Hope. You and I talked about it recently. 
But that book resonated with me so much. I loved it because I'm like, now we're talking. It's like it just there's a beauty in it when it's you know it's lived out in community in all sorts of different ways, as opposed to just being a theological construct mm-hmm. that becomes something that's day in and day out. That's really it brings hope, and it, it here's what it looks like, and it comes in the form oftentimes through God's people in very tangible ways. And so we love to mobilize. We say we mobilize godly people into the lives of kids and families to provide tangible help and eternal hope. That's technically our mission statement of what we do. What I mean, A, a great mission statement, and B, that really is, it, it, my understanding of Christianity is that's what it's all about. I mm-hmm. think uh, we're living in an era where, I don't want to say the church is at a crossroads that might be overstating things, but there's kind of this internal debate going on regarding what's the primary messaging. Is it getting justified so that your eternal destiny is secure or is mm-hmm. it living the the life now? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to minimize one or the other of those conversations, mm-hmm. but I would say that the front door that uh, has ground level appeal, at least in my culture is not get my ticket punched to go to heaven. People want to know, how can I live a meaningful life? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I honestly think Jesus spoke much more about that in many ways than he did eternal destiny. I mean, he said, hey, I want you to be a river of living water so that you're imparting hope to yeah. us. I came that you might not just have life, but you might have life abundantly. And then Paul reiterates that in Galatians when he goes, he goes, it pleased God not to send me to heaven when I die. It pleased God to reveal his son in me. And so, mm-hmm. wow, if we can be kind of the hands and feet of Jesus today with generosity, with with movements toward justice, healing, forgiveness, hospitality, as you're doing through your ministry, mm-hmm. that that gives the gospel credibility way more than kind of the fish-shaking, yeah. angry, politicized Jesus that is too often what the media is portraying the Christian life. You're, I couldn't agree more, Richard. You know, we use anchor passages around here like Genesis 12, that you've been blessed so that you will be a blessing. We use yep. 2 Corinthians 5. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is probably one of my very first verses to memorize. If anyone says Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But when you look around that, that it's the love of Christ that compels us. It pushes us. It controls us. And then you look at we're ambassadors of reconciliation later on in, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. It's like, you know what, Lord? These are the things that we get excited about here, that we've been made new and given a new purpose. And in that, there's excitement and, and joy and abundance. And and that's what we're about. And funny enough, you use the word credibility there. When when my family takes a trip, you know, we have three white kids in our family, two black kids in our family. We, we for 10 years, have had foster kids with us. So we typically have six kids in our family most of the time. People, they stare. They ask us if we're a daycare, which is really funny and odd all the time. You know, they ask us the craziest of things. But it brings such credibility that sometimes people, all they want to do is say, hey, God bless you for what you're do- for what this li-. like there's instant. I don't want to say respect, but but instant I, credibility is probably the word I'd use. Yeah, um, yeah. Or when people have tried to pick fights with me online at times in Facebook, you know, that whole type of thing. When I'm always like I'm trying to bring grace to the conversation. I look, I'm not going to argue with you here. But if you're wondering if I really care about people. In a sense, look at my resume. Like I've been fostering, we've adopted. You know, I know you say I need to care for kids all the way around. Well, guess what? My wife and I support after-school programs, and we raise money to do this. Like we fight for being a multi-ethnic ministry. Like, yeah, 
you know, find a, a chink in the armor in a sense, like this is really what I'm about. It's not yeah. just something I argue about online and I, and I don't really argue online in case people are interested in doing that, but, yeah. but it's credibility that it brings. And so I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you there. When you mentioned online, I, that's a good segue to uh, a, a pretty important question that'll frame our conversation here. I'm not a big fan of Facebook these days for many, many reasons. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the silver lining in that dark cloud is my capacity to stay in touch with folks that I've met down through the years, including you, Kevin. Yeah. And, and so I just want to share with you a couple of things that were kind of going on simultaneously in my life. You know, I'm uh, pastoring a church that has been on a growth trajectory for many years and adding new locations. And with that, uh, an unanticipated in my management naive, naivety, unanticipated level of complexity and I'm getting, you know, stressed and, and drained. I've got now adult children and now grandchildren and, mm-hmm. and my adult children have unique needs. My grandchildren, they want me, need me. I want to be there for them. And then I, I hear a podcast on energy management, right? For leaders, energy management for leaders. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man. And I'm taking notes, you know, and going, okay, I'm going to Sabbath it, you know, every Friday and go on a silent solitude hike. And I'm going to eat my vegetables and make my kale smoothie. And I'm just going to nail it and get my sleep. And even with all that, I'm feeling often, you know, overwhelmed. And then I go on to Facebook and I find out that my friend Kevin East has been diagnosed with cancer. And then it's a long journey. I want you to talk about a little bit. And I got to tell you, it created in me this sense of, Awe is probably too strong a word, but if I'm honest, just like, how are you doing this? How are mm-hmm. you raising this family, sustaining your marriage, bringing foster kids into your house, everything that you just mentioned? How are you mm-hmm. holding that resume of service and generosity intact and fighting this unanticipated battle with cancer? So can you kind of walk us through, first of all, diagnosis and your initial yeah. responses and then you can pick up on how we hold our world together and our calling together in the midst of unanticipated setbacks. Yeah. So just to kind of give you the basics of it, and then we can we can kick it around a little bit. I mean, I I went to some I go to church with some great people, and some of them are doctors and surgeons. And I went to some of my I talked about some of my symptoms I was having probably in January of 2020, and they're like, "Hey, we need to get you a colonoscopy." And I was like, "Ooh, no thanks. Nope, not going to do that." And they're like, "No, no, no. We put you under these days for that." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I can do that." Well, supposed to have it in February 2020. Well, then COVID hits, as we all know. So they pushed back all elective procedures um, for months, and so uh, I ended up having a colonoscopy uh, June the 15th. So I had gone to my surgeon friends in early January, had it pushed back to June the 15th. June the 15th went in for a colonoscopy and came out and my good friend who was the GI doctor um, said, hey, do you mind if I take off my mask? I don't have COVID. And he was a great friend from church. And he said, and he said, man, I hate to tell you this, but you have cancer. Hmm. Uh, it was stage 3B colorectal cancer. I had a two-inch tumor uh, inside of my colon, low in my colon. Um, his face was white and telling me. So honestly, Richard, I said, man, uh, I'm so sorry you're going to tell me this. Like I feel terrible for you. Um, I looked at my wife and Candidly, her, her dad had just passed away from an aggressive prostate cancer about four or five years ago. And so we had just walked this road with her dad. And so you can imagine for my wife, just hearing her husband has cancer was 
was not fun to say the least. But so that was in June of 2020. Um, I just simply responded to him like, is this, do I need to have like some sort of a simple procedure to cut something out? I mean, what, what's the deal? And he said, I remember him telling me, he was like, no, this is life changing. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're going to have to go through a lot of chemo, radiation, surgery. We don't know if we want to reconnect your colon. And so like many, you might have to have a colostomy bag and mm. I didn't know anything about it. So I was terrified and petrified of that idea. And so long story short, uh, I went through 12, I went through eight rounds of chemo, then 28 treatments of radiation, uh, had surgery to remove part of my colon. And then they found a couple live cancer cells in one of the lymph nodes they removed. So they said, we want you to do four more rounds of chemo. Um, and then a second surgery to reconnect my colon. So they were able to reconnect me, which was, I was very, very grateful for. Mm. Um, but that whole process took about a year. That was June of 2020 to June of 2021. And so, uh, it's like I said, a total of 12 rounds of chemo, 28 treatments of radiation and two surgeries. And so it was daunting, Richard. I mean, I'm not Superman. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not. And I, I just, it was really scary the first two weeks because I have to run a series of tests to find out how bad it is. And I remember mm. sitting with my oldest boys and tell them I had cancer and they burst out into tears and they're like, mm. you know, how bad is it? I said, I don't know. And they said, you're lying to us. You know, you're just not telling us. I said, no, I, I really don't know. And so we came to find out it was stage 3B, uh, which means which meant that I had the tumor and some infected lymph nodes, um, but it hadn't broken the colon wall. And so um, so I, we just start walking with it, honestly, and just, you know, how do we do this? And partly the way that God has wired me and, and partly a little bit probably in some ways just out of fear or something, I turn a lot of things into a competition. And so. I had been running through COVID because I was bored um, in COVID. You know, you're working from home all the time. You just got to get out of the house, right? So that's what I mean by boredom. You just, so I had been running before, but I was like, I'm going to start running six miles now. And then when I got diagnosed, I didn't know how long I'd be able to run. So I was like, well, I got to keep running six miles then. And then it turned into, hey, I had my first round of chemo and I still ran six miles. I'm going to run through all of my chemo rounds. Like mm. this will be something that will remind me that I'm alive. It will give me a challenge to fight. Um, mm. So that's the goal I said. I said, I'm going to run six miles every other day through chemo and every what I call my pump day. So if anybody, any listeners have ever been through chemo, you know, you go sit in a chair for five hours. Um, they fill you full of chemo and then you leave oftentimes with a tube and a metaport in your chest connected to a pump that you wear like in a fanny pack or something. And it continues to kind of slow drip into your body over a period of 48 hours mm. so that, uh, you know, mine was always I'd go in the chair on Wednesday. I'd wear the pump till Friday at lunch. And then you feel really rotten for a couple of days after that. So Thursday morning, I got the pump on Wednesday afternoon. I'd wear it till Friday lunch. Thursday morning, I will run six miles every pump day mm. just to kind of be like, I'm still alive. And mm. I, and it, it just, for the way that it's not, a, everybody's not wired that way, but for me, it really helped remind me that I'm still alive. And so it became a challenge for me of, I've got to get up and move around. I've got to eat calories. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go run. And my pace, as you can imagine, slowed. Uh, the uphills had to turn into walks, but, but was able to keep it up throughout. So I was grateful for that. Well, so the running, I mean, you use the word running a lot, but the phrase that you used that's really popped for me that I hadn't heard that you used before is I'm still alive. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, what kind of a mindset is needed when 
the future goes from kind of the illusion of predictability because it's we, none of us really know, but we all think, oh, tomorrow is going to be like today was, and then suddenly, tomorrow is not like today, and and that and then the future becomes existentially yeah. like now we now we really don't know what is that phrase i'm alive do to inform that uncertainty like how does that work for you? yeah you know mine i'd probably describe was based uh in some ways if i was to really be candid and transparent it was based in fear in some ways mm-hmm. richard is is i you know i've been a believer for decades i've been involved in ministry leadership i've led bible studies spoken at big groups and things like that but when i found out i had cancer I was surprised that one of the first things that went through my mind was how much do I believe about heaven is biblical and how much is kind of what we Americans like to describe mm. heaven to be like. Mm. And I, it was really like a soul search. Like I need to get in scripture to really go, what does the Bible say about heaven? Because I'm really concerned that it might be vastly different than what I've heard and taught and passed mm. on or whatever it is. Mm. So when I say I'm still alive, it was there was some aspect that was just not necessarily fearful to die, but fearful to leave my kids fatherless in a sense, mm-hmm. um, fearful to leave my wife, to be really transparent. The idea of having cancer, I started thinking about heaven and the cra- I started having really crazy thoughts like, when I die and go to heaven, am I going to have like a sleeping bag and a backpack, but not really know where to go? Like, mm. am I going to be lost? And all of a sudden I started feeling like a kid mm. in a grown man's body. Mm. And so... I think probably initially, as I look back, the phrase, I'm still alive, was almost like out of fear, like I'm still alive. Mm. I'm, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. And then it kind of leveled out over a period of time of just reminding myself, I'm still alive. God still has purpose for me on this earth. Mm. And I want to be used up to my very last day. Kind of more, you know, I've Psalm 71, 17, and 18 hanging up above my fireplace that just talks about, you know, oh God, since my youth, you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, do not forsake me mm. until I proclaim your right to the next generation, your power to all those to come. Mm. It was like, you know what, Lord? So even to my last breath, Lord, let my kids see me walk through cancer in a way that makes them not as fearful of death wow. or that makes them trust more in who you are, not more in what we can see and understand here on this earth. Yeah. that's probably what I'm still alive started meaning to me as I, as I went throughout, but it definitely probably started candidly in fear. If I had yeah. to, if I'd be totally honest. Well, with I love the, I love the uh, thought that you just articulated uh, about uh, suddenly something that wasn't on your radar is now. And that's what am I going to teach my kids as I die? You know, and, and mm-hmm. now kind of spoiler alert, this is not totally behind you, but, behind you mm-hmm. in some ways mm-hmm. practically but that that powerful and and, and literally actually yeah oh, yeah <laughs> but that powerful yeah. lesson is still there right like yeah we don't just teach our kids how to live we will by mentoring an example you know teach our family how to die and so that's right you know, there's something and, may, and, and mark you know the bible's words we will all teach our kids that not just some of us and that's when you're diagnosed with cancer, all of a sudden death becomes much closer. Yeah. You know, and like you're saying, you know, I, I eat my weeds. I've been eating healthy. I've been running for years. I've done a number of half marathons. I, you know, I'm in shape. I'm not overweight. And yeah, but all of a sudden you get diagnosed and I have no family history of cancer, nothing like yeah. that. So when I first go to the hospital, tell me about all your medicines you're on. I'm like, I'm not on any medicines. I, I've you know, none of that type of stuff. Right. But all of a sudden it became very close and very real. 
And then well-meaning friends would say, man, I know that God's going to heal you. And, and I, I love them for loving me. But I was like, you know, I remember reading somewhere that there were 38 recorded miracles in the Gospels. But eventually all 38 of those people eventually died. That's you right. know, at yeah, some yeah, yeah. point, we all die. And so then I'm like, okay, Lord, this is coming for all of us. Yeah, that's right. And so what if I looked at my life is I want to teach my kids not just how to live, but, but also how to die, yeah. like what this looks like. And it was an it was an odd barrier to get over. Of, yep. am I really wanting to teach my kids how to die too? But, um, but it's something I had to get comfortable with, no doubt. Super powerful. Well, and then the other the other thing that's going on is life doesn't stop, right? All these rounds, eight rounds of chemo, 20, 20 rounds of radiation, plus a family, plus fo- yeah. with foster kids, plus a a, a ministry that you're you're heading, you're, you're in charge. And, yeah. and it's not like, it's not like you can kind of go to bed and say, I'll see you in six months. So yeah. talk to me about where we find the resources to continue on our calling, how that dovetails with kind of the conventional wisdom of energy management for fulfilling our callings. Yeah. How does that all weave together for you? Yeah. You know, it was, very different than what I expected. I'll tell you that. When I first found out I had cancer, I wanted people to hear it from me. So I released a video um, out and uh, it was within, within a day. It might have been the afternoon that I found out I had cancer. It was at least within 24 hours. And I said in the video, I was looking forward to the intimacy I would experience with God as walking through suffering and the intimacy I experienced with my wife. And I would tell you, Richard, honestly, that's not, that wasn't quite my experience. Um, it was I was expecting to just be like, you know, just my time of the Lord would just be rich and it would be, well, well, guess what? You feel rotten when you're on chemo. That's right. You know, when you're being radiated, you're very, very uncomfortable. Um, and so I would lay on the trampoline and pray breath player prayers in my backyard. Yeah, that was yeah. things like, uh, you know, by your, by your power for your kingdom, for your glory or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was just a three three phrase breath prayer as I lay there and moaned with chemo because moaning out loud for somehow some reason helps when you're in, just feel terrible. Wow, wow. So the intimacy it wasn't wasn't there. I, I thought I'd have like rich times in the Bible. I didn't want to read the Bible. I just felt terrible. And then I felt terrible for not wanting to read the Bible because <laughs> I just physically nauseated. Yeah. But then what happened was what kind of gave me the the energy, the strength to keep going was honestly God's provision for me of community around me, that weakness became a platform for vulnerability mm-hmm. and vulnerability became a platform for community mm. and community. Maybe and I'm just making this up as I go, but maybe community became a platform for energy that it was like, I mean, I, I was never one that was really emotional. Well, all of a sudden I'm on chemo and I, and I cry at the drop of a hat. I mean, I just, mm. I just was a lot more emotional and I was weak in that. But in that vulnerability, it would be, our friendships became all the sweeter and closer. Yep. We have some great friends, John and Laura, that we would get together with literally every afternoon mm. and just debrief the day. Wow. And those times became life-giving. I, I, I think out of all my months of chemo, I might have missed, because of chemo and cancer, I might have missed maybe 10, five to 10 afternoons together of debriefing the day. Uh, It was just that vital to me. That vulnerability of how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you eating? You know, what are you eating? And then catching up with them. That community that was built because of the vulnerability, because of the weakness, really left, I left there recharged. And so I, I started growing it 
at a deeper place in my faith because of community around me now. Mm. And it was it was no longer built on I've got to go sit and not I have to go sit and read my Bible for a while. It was like I don't want to. I don't feel like it right now. I'm nauseated. I get I get I feel gross reading. It became the beauty of the community around me, encouraging me in the scriptures, uplifting me in the scriptures, living out the scriptures, where I just left renewed and refreshed, and wow. it would give me hope for the next day. Wow, you know, I I'm just um, I just finished writing a little teeny book that uh, goes with our current sermon sermon series, but the title of the book is Forest Faith. And it's based on the notion that we can learn a lot about what it means to be a Christ follower just by walking through the woods. Mm. There's a chapter in there called Christ Around Me, I'm Connected. And I use the uh, kind of the biology of the forest to articulate how the way that God has made the world, if we just look at it, is objective critique of our hyper-individualism, go-it-alone mentality that often, to be blunt, prevails in the church as well. I know I have said, all you need is Jesus. I've said that to people. But I also say now, now that I'm 65, I have to qualify that statement. And I have to say to people, you know, Jesus doesn't just show up in the text. Jesus has a body, the body of Christ. So Jesus shows up in those friends who sit with you through cancer. And yeah. those people who come when a child has cancer or when uh, yeah. there's a loss of life in a family, like when you're there for each other, this is Christ ministering to you. And mm-hmm. I just, it's tragic to me that we narrowly go, oh yeah, you want to meet Jesus? Go read your Bible. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's totally appropriate. But let's not narrow down the manner in which uh, we meet Jesus so that it's solely through the text. Because That's right. so much comes through our community uh, together. You know, you're exactly right, Richard. And maybe, I don't know if it, you know, you have it as much in your part of the country. I don't know. But certainly where I live, people can get scared of that idea. They can feel like, well, now you're, you're discounting the scriptures. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not discounting the right. scriptures, nor the validity of the scriptures, nor the inerrancy of the scriptures. Right. I, I recognize them but I don't limit it to the scriptures that there is a, there is a beauty that I've experienced just like the beauty of the multi-ethnic body of Christ that we celebrate here as a ministry. There is a beauty in suffering together and in walking and suffering. I mean, when, when I, when people would ask me, especially during radiation, you know, how's that going? I said, well, let me give you the inside look. You know, my, when you go through radiation and I'm sure it's different in different parts of the body, but where I was getting radiated, your hands and your feet just dry out really, really badly. Mm. And so there's something, I forget what they call like hand foot syndrome or something, Mm -hmm. but they really just dry out. So at night they tell you to really lube up your hands and feet with just all sorts of lotion and Mm. whatever it was all over. So at night, here's my sweet wife, you know, lubing up my feet with just Mm. caking on the, the lotion and then putting socks on my feet and then doing the same thing on my hands and putting these white mime looking gloves on my hands so I could sleep with, socks and and uh and gloves on and i'm like that's jesus living through my wife right there right yeah loving and serving me and and my and our friends john and laura and man richard i had a guy show up my house i'm gonna i'm gonna mow your grass because you you just love me and i want to i want to bless you and another guy's another family said we want to pay to have your house clean and i mean it just was like 
I was blown away of the body of Christ stepping up to love us. And in that environment is, or even like, look at the, my last six mile run as I celebrated the end of cancer, I was ringing a bell. I had like 40, 50 people show up at my house. Like we're running six miles with you today. And it was, I felt like Rocky, you know, I felt like Rocky running in wherever he was in Philadelphia or something. There's this horde, I'm running through the country in East Texas. Yeah. But I've got pictures of this horde of people running oh, it's beautiful. with me. And I was like, just, I was thinking that morning, I got to keep running. Like, I'd be so embarrassed if I couldn't run six miles today now. And so, yeah. but, but that's, that's when we talk about energy and all that type of stuff, I was surprised. I thought my time in the scriptures would be deep and rich and sweet, but I was just nauseated. I couldn't do it. And what happens was God was revealing himself also through his body of believers around me yeah. that really were like Aaron holding up Moses' arms for me yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, it, though it's trite by comparison, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about my sabbatical experience in that book I wrote, The Map is Not the Journey. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going on sabbatical. This would be awesome. It's just me and Jesus. I'm going to hike all day. That's going to be solitude. I'm going to ride at night. I'm going to have a tent. And instead, I ended up hiking hut to hut in Europe and eating literally with strangers every night <laughs> around a table, four different languages. And and there's people everywhere. You're so, like literally, my wife and I are sleeping one one night. We're in this bunkhouse, co-ed. Families are in there. Everybody's in there. And there's a guy sleeping next to me, and there's a guy sleeping next to my wife. And my wife and I are in the middle. And the guy sleeping next to my wife was the the worst snoring person uh. on the face of the planet. And I was like, whoa, here we are. And yet, I will say to you that it was the people that we met along the way that offered the most profound gift and transformation so that it began to change my theology. And, and I go, yeah, I, the Bible's really important. And Jesus shows up not just in the text, but in the body of Christ. And, and we have to be open to both of those tools as means yeah. of information. And it sounds like that was a, a real theme for you. through your You know, similar to your experience, because I remember when you shared with me months ago, weeks ago, whatever it was about your experience and your sabbatical. And I remember saying to you in that moment, like, that sounds miserable. Like when you're like, man, I was around people. I was like, that just sounds miserable. I just went on sabbatical, got away. And my wife and I get to Florida, spend a few days on the beach there. We go to this restaurant. It's raining outside. It's packed. The only seats are at the bar. We sit up at the bar and there's this very intoxicated couple sitting next to us. We start talking to them. They're very friendly. Um, but he, and he says to me, what do you do? And I went, well, I lead a ministry out in Texas. He says, oh, you got to come to church with us tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Um, this very intoxicated couple. And I said, well, where? And he told me the church. They go, well, there's outside seats. And there's this. So I said, sure, we'll come. So the next morning, Sunday morning, we went, met him there, said hi, whatever, kept going. We're taking pictures of this quaint little chapel, and this older couple walks up to us, just the joy of Jesus all over their faces, Richard. And, and I said, well, hey, how you doing? My name's Chip. My name's Martha. So this is my wife, Stephanie, and I. And you know, what brings you to the area? So we're on vacation. I'm on sabbatical and had a lot of touch points. And they were just so kind and compassionate. And then all of a sudden, I said, well, we're also celebrating kind of the end of my cancer treatment. And he says, oh, I finished mine two years ago. Oh, man. We got to talking, and he said, can I just pray over you? Oh, wow. He put his hand on my shoulders, but his hand was a little bit low on my chest. And I still have a metaport in my chest. And I saw it's my metaport. And he said, oh, I, I know what it is. Whoa. Well, Richard, that became my pinnacle of my time in Florida was I honestly believe because I tell people when you walk through cancer, even with a loving wife and loving friends, you just feel alone a lot. It's yep. it's an odd fraternity that when people walk through cancer, 
you get it. You know what it's like to go through chemo. And I, I told people, I felt like it was God meeting me there, yep. using a drunk couple to invite us to a place we would have never gone. Yep. And then all of a sudden we meet this blessing of a couple who God just totally spoke to, to say, Kevin, I relate to you. I understand. I'm walking with you. I haven't left you. Yep. I'm here for you. It was a it was a total renewal right in that moment of like Lord thank you I mean I just was in tears yeah. experiencing it that morning just like I, I'm just blown away by God's presence in this. yeah I, that just reiterates this this idea that uh, Jesus is displaying his life in the world through fallible yeah. human saints you know who are filled yeah. with the life of Christ and we want to be those who are both giving that and receiving it and and so yeah. I, you know I want to thank you for taking a few minutes here to, to chat about this stuff because it's it, it's what we need to be reminded of is that God shows up through community and we don't need to feel that unless I am fulfilling all the prescribed spiritual disciplines that I think are defining my faith, God won't show up. You may not physically be able to fulfill those prescribed physical disciplines in a moment, you know, in a particular season mm-hmm. of life. And yet God can still show up in other ways. So yeah. yeah, Thank you, Kevin. Absolutely. I mean, he did and he has, and I would maybe end with this thought is, you know, I, I looking back towards the end of my cancer journey while I was going through treatment, I realized, you know what, one of the things I realized I do, and I, and I don't think it's all good, Richard, I think there's some well-meaning intended things about it, but I solve problems through strength. So, if I find out I have cancer, I'm going to go run six miles. And by golly, I'm going to do it all the time. And when I when I go to Dallas to the hospital there and they were having to do like a true long swab check for COVID in my nose, I was like, I'm not going to flinch. Like I would tell the nurse, you do what you need to do. I won't flinch because in my mind, I turn into a competition then, right? Or right. if I'm going to get the Metaport, I won't flinch. Or if I'm going to, when you had to have very uncomfortable exams, as you can imagine, you know, as you go through this, I'm not going to budge. And what I realized through this is I didn't quite understand. I still don't quite understand vulnerability. I don't mm. understand empathy. Mm. I, I have struggled with nurture and I struggle with all that at an emotional level. Mm. And God has used this season to start making me aware of like, you know, it's our weakness that we boast in, not our strength. Yeah. It's our weakness that we boast in. It's okay for me to talk about I was afraid. Yeah. And, you know, candidly, it was probably because of this fleshly thing that motivated me to do this. But in the midst of now the weakness, like, okay, Lord, now I'm, I I see myself as more needy of the community around me than I ever have, as opposed to kind of the, the typical, stereotypical, friendless American male, as I've always referred to it, yep. that we're kind of more like the John Wayne, you know, I, I yep. do my own thing. Yep. I'm in a different place now. And God has used cancer to help open my eyes to that new place, which I'm grateful for. Thank you. And I know that that'll be an encouragement to many, many people. And my prayer is that all of us are open to learning what God has to teach us through these unexpected detours. And when we, I mean, you don't have to thank God for the cancer, but you can say, God, you've got something in here for me. That's right. The beauty of the life of faith that you and I share is not that we're granted immunity from suffering. It's that we're granted the promise of ongoing transformation come what may. And you've really given us a lot to think about and apply in terms of tapping into that transformative process in the midst of setback so thank you yeah i look good. forward to more conversations in the future absolutely and thanks to all of our listeners uh we'll see you next time on the toward wholeness podcast look forward to that time then bye-bye